This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook and at trevorjamesflutes.com. This is Talking Flutes. I'm Claire Southworth. Now, the last time I chatted to Liz Walker, we had the most fantastic response and so many listeners asked for more. So that's what we're doing today via Zoom. Hi there, Liz. Hi, Claire. That's very exciting news. Yeah, it was a great hit. I thought today we'd, we'd start with the subject that, again, lots of people ask about, which is finger technique. And as with many of our topics that we pick, it's a huge subject area. So I thought, let's not talk about it. Let's just dive in and see where we get to. Perfect. So where would you like to start? Or would you like me to start? Uh, go on. Why don't you start, Claire? Okay. Tell me what you're thinking. Well, first of all, we know that think your technique is only as good as your sound. So you've really got to get your sound sorted as much as possible before you get into actual finger technique. Because... If your, if your sound isn't good, then your finger technique will never get there either. And then I would say that checking also basics like posture and breathing and embouchure is also important. So you're getting your basics sorted, get the foundation sorted so the fingers can work. And then basically, then after that, start with the three balance points. Three balance points on the flute, the base of your first finger left hand the thumb of your right hand using your chin as the fulcrum. And then if the flute is balanced correctly, your fingers are free. So I always say, think about pushing your left hand towards you and up and your right hand outwards and up. And together against your chin, it makes the flute sort of weightless and frees your fingers up. I think that's so important. I mean, it's a real shortcut, but I have, and I'm sure you have Claire over the years, come across students who feel that they have to continue to hold the flute with the edge of the right hand first finger. And they feel that that's really comfortable. And when you look at the mechanics of wanting each of those fingers to lift up the same amount, that's never gonna work if one of those fingers is trying to hold the flute. That's right. So we're trying to, what we're talking about then is trying to eliminate the points of contact that are not necessary. So yeah. if, the three, if you have the three points of contact of the base of your first finger, right hand, thumb, and your chin, the other fingers are free. So common faults, holding the flute with both little fingers, yes. one or both. As you said, the, the, your, your right hand, first finger resting on the rods. It's a security thing, isn't it? It is, yeah. And, and it, you know, that can be quite, it takes quite a lot of courage if you continue for too long holding the flute with that first finger you are going to be resistant to the idea that you can remove it safely. So if anyone is listening to this going, ah, that might be me, we've got to try and persuade you that, that you really don't need to hold the flute at that point. And I can so appreciate that it 
that as you say it, it's a comfort thing you feel you have to do that and i like to sort of uh wiggle my fingers in the air wave them all equally just to check and if you need to stand over a mattress when you do that just to be sure that you're not going to drop your precious expensive flute um do but it, you know you really should be able to wave all your fingers if you've got those three as you say the three sort of hold points perfect yeah. So there used to be sort of a mantra that we'd go, fingers curved, relaxed over the center of the keys. We're all shaped differently, of course. And it doesn't just start with the fingers. You think about where your fingers are attached to. So they're attached to your hand and attached to your wrist. So mm -hmm. also you have to have a look at, at maybe what the wrists are doing. Both are slightly bent in order that your, your balance points can work. And you know, if you're not sure, ask your teacher or look online. There are many things to look at before you actually think about moving those fingers. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, if you if you uh, if you like sort of imagine you're playing a D and you play that D with just your right hand and then take the whole of the left hand away and just roll your shoulder and get your arm really, really rotating in the air and then bring it back to the flute and just make sure as you bring it back, because I think you're absolutely right, you're attached to your wrist, but you're also attached to your elbow and into your shoulder and that whole digit, if you like, that whole arm needs to come to the flute and i think also we tend to try and bring ourselves to our flute sometimes and it must be the other way around you must find that i mean it's never going to be that brilliant to hold your arms up in the air and if you just hold your arms up without your flute uh, you can feel that actually that's not a brilliant i mean i'm not going to go around today without flute holding my arms up in the air uh, but it needs to be as relaxed as possible because that is a movement that is not totally comfortable mm -hmm. and if you're putting tension or an unnecessary amount of weight into the wrong place that is very quickly going to put you off playing the flute and i think uh, we owe it to our bodies if you like to try and get as relaxed a position as possible um, so then you can reverse it. You can play that same D with your left hand and take the right hand away and, 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 and see if you can bring that arm to your flute. You know, just, just play around with those ideas of how comfortable the flute feels in your arms, as well as obviously making sure that you're, you're balancing the flute in your hands the right amount. And it's difficult because we talk about relaxed hands. But as I say, that, that whole posture is not that relaxing. So it's as relaxed as you can be whilst in a fairly uncomfortable position. It has to be said, it's not the best. It's not, it's, it's, a, it's not like playing an oboe or a clarinet where the instrument is in front of you. Or a cello, so, so beautiful. Yeah, sure. that you can hug your cello and uh, we really can't hug our flutes and, and we can't get a, we can't avoid the fact that it's not a brilliant position. And also that, you know, our fingers are going to be flying around, which is what we want them to do. Uh, but we want, we want them to do it as comfortably as possible. So it's eliminating any wasted energy, I think, here. So we're trying to get it as comfortable as possible whilst recognising that yes, this this is a an unusual position to have your hands in, um, but we need to try and we sort of owe it to ourselves, if you like, to try and get that as comfortable as possible. Yeah, we often talk about taking head to the flute rather than flute to the head, which is what you were saying. The other thing people try is if you let your hands go 
loose by your side, both hands go into the perfect hand position where your fingers are curved and relaxed. So it's really remembering about what is, does relaxed feel like? And, and also look at the relationship of where your thumb is in relation to your first finger of your left hand. It's at right angles. So that can be the same when you put your flute up. And then you were talking about, yes, we're trying to play in as relaxed way as possible. I always remember um, a wonderful comment by Jeffrey Gilbert. He used to talk about a controlled relaxation. He said, we're always talking about being relaxed. He said, but if you're totally relaxed, you'll fall over. <laughs> so it's 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 controlled relaxation. And he's right, there's there's it there's movement, a bit like when you see runners, when you see the, the, the top athletes when they run. When they run, they're they're working their muscles, but they're relaxed. Yeah. So it's it's different to being to be having tension. Tension stops the movement. Relax controlled relaxation allows the movement. And I th often like the analogy of the energy that you have in your hands is equivalent to trying to, you know, putting it as back into a sort of almost Darwinian place. It's like taking an apple off a tree. And I quite like that analogy because, you, yes, you, you can't take an apple off a tree in a totally relaxed way, mm -hmm. but we don't need any more force than, you know, that lovely feeling when the apple just detaches itself naturally into your hand. So yes, you need you need some energy. You've got to have energy, but no tension. Absolutely. Okay, so we've got checking your basics. We've got to try and make sure, think about the three balance points so that the fingers are released, so they're free. Maybe we should talk a little bit about closed and open holes and inline and offset Gs and curved head joints. Because yes. there are all these variables. Now, personally, I've always played open hole in line, which sort of makes you bring your wrist, your left wrist, bend your wrist a little bit more so your fingers reach. But most, I would say most flutes have offset Gs, wouldn't you say? I think most flutes nowadays, so I think what the standard flute, if people aren't um, familiar with the terminology, if you look at your flute, your, your G finger is going to be out a little bit, and that's what we mean by offset. And our G sharp key is going to be un, on, the, on the back side, if you like, of the flute, and it's going to be closed. So that's a closed G sharp offline. If you haven't got that set up, it is unusual. Um, but by choice, and I think you and I agree here, Claire, we like our little fingers to be active and almost mirrored. And so therefore our G sharps are on the top of the flute and the key is open. So that's the open G sharp. Okay. Now it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you and I play our open G sharp flutes, we have to keep the left hand little finger above the key because we're using it all the time. Yeah. But if you've got a closed G, G, G flute, G sharp flute, then it's very easy for your little finger to sit below the G sharp key and help hold the flute up. So, yeah, that's something else for people <laughs> to look at, to play in front of a mirror and say, where are my little fingers? And they should be over their keys. If your little finger sits below the G sharp key, it will, tend to pull your third finger off its key as well and your second finger off its key. So you could very easily end up playing on the edges of the keys. So we want you to try and get the fingers over the center of the keys, whether you have an open hold or a closed hold flute. Yeah. 
I'd agree with that. And then I most often encourage my students to check what's happening to that little finger because often I see it as a slight litmus paper to indicate tension because if that little finger that the, the that G sharp finger is really 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 tight either sticking up in the air tight or it can be curved really tight then I I can see that that whole hand is very tense yeah um, and it's often it does often reveal itself in in the little finger so you can very quickly uh, look in as you say look in the mirror and go I oh, yeah yeah mm -hmm. my that's that doesn't look like a relaxed little finger now with the right hand little finger we often see it's pushed down so hard that it's almost sort of bent backwards on itself yeah. so it's another point of of contact to look at and if if you think that your little finger is very straight and very tense just try and turn your right wrist slightly away from you mm -hmm. which helps it reach the key and will help it curve a little bit and of course, this sounds so obvious, but you've got so much movability in that foot joint. And, and you, you know, just try moving the foot joint round, uh, either away from you or towards you. Uh, don't feel that that's not important because it's really important. Your, your little finger is sat there on that key quite a lot. Mm. And if it's in, in an uncomfortable situation or a position, then just change it. Yeah. Now, you've just reminded me of something because also a, one common fault is that players play where the keys, if you were to look down your flute, the keys are facing towards them, in which mm -hmm. case the three balance points don't work and the little finger on the right hand has to work overtime. So when you look down your flute, look at the keys on your right hand, under your right hand fingers, and make sure they're at least facing up to the ceiling, even a little bit out so that the, you're more able to balance the flute. Because there's so much weight of metal on the inside of the flute that if you, if you turn your keys in towards you, that overbalances and you've got to create tension in order to hold the flute up. Yeah. And I think a final point, Claire, and I've only recently uh, realized uh, the potential here, because uh, I've just bought a new flute where actually the spring on the E flat key was so tight yeah. uh, that within within a day or two of playing this new flute, I had this shooting pain up my arm. Yeah. And you know, just make sure that you don't criticize yourself too quickly because I think we're all very capable of going. This is this is my problem. Take it into a flute men, uh, flute shop, and they will lighten up the spring. And and that leads me to say, you know, the the distance between where the pads sit proud of the hole, that can be regulated too. So there is a chance that your flute might need a service uh, just to make sure that the mechanism itself isn't too tight, too loose, sitting too high. Uh, there are infinite possibilities here. And I think we, as I say, well, if you're anything like me, you blame yourself first and forget that actually there might be a problem with your flute. Yeah, I remember from years ago that some teachers, because the, the D-sharp key can often leak a little bit, and some teachers would strengthen the spring, hold it shut, and then you've got these poor students who can't actually push the key down at all because it's just too hard, so they tend not to use it. A good thing to check that it's the spring is firm enough to close, but not so firm you can't push it down in a relaxed way.
really, if anyone has the opportunity, change to an open G-sharp flute because then you've got more keys that are sprung open, which yeah. may, means that we're, we're far more able to play in a, in a relaxed way. And this was Boehm's great invention. I mean, yeah. he invented the open G-sharp flute, and I'm afraid it was the historical flute players on eight-keyed flutes that forced the G-sharp issue because they were used to having this long, cumbersome uh, G-sharp key, and they didn't want to turn things around. But we don't need to feel that that's, you know, you've got to follow this trend. I am convinced, I must say, that an awful lot of finger um problems that I see in students would never have been there in the first place had they been brought up on an open G-sharp. And, yeah. and there are student models now. Yes, but Trevor James has a, an open G-sharp model and it's great, plays beautifully. Yeah, you know, buck the trend. Even if you've got a teacher who's not playing on an open G-sharp flute, that doesn't mean that you can't, can't do that. Yes, it is a little complicated in the first instance, changing everything around. So basically you need to play a G sharp fingering to play a G. And of course that, that translates to some of the higher notes needing that little finger down. So it's a little bit confusing to begin with, but once you've cracked it, you've definitely got the advantages of a completely balanced hand position then. Yeah, and also it's a logical system. You put fingers down to go down and you take fingers up to go up. Very, yeah. very it's oh, very... we've, we've got our point across about open G sharp, Liz. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's talk about um, the distance of fingers from keys. Now, we often talk about being equally distanced, but I know that a lot of players, it's almost natural to have the middle finger sitting much higher than the two fingers on either side of it. So again, yeah. we need mirrors to make sure the fingers are equ equally distance above the keys, don't we? It, it's it's so logical that if you want an even fingered scale, let's say, if each finger, if each digit goes up the same amount, then you're going to find that evenness. If you've got one finger that goes up much higher than the one next door, then it's going to take longer to get back down again. So, you know, the logic is is blindingly obvious but actually training your fingers to be almost like digits in a on a on a i don't know on a, on a machine or you know to be mechanical therefore about the the way they react is quite tricky and i think you need to be very disciplined and probably have you know more patience than you might feel you've got and you definitely need a mirror I mean, you've got to do up, down, up, down, up, down, down, up, down, up, down. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, what's happening there, of course, is that you're creating um, muscle memory. As as long as you're doing the skill in the right, right way, you're, you're creating muscle memory and creating neural pathways. Now, I went and looked up a sort of a definition of neural pathways, and it means that when a person is performing a, a certain action, they then activate neurons in different parts of the brain. And by doing so, they're connecting their nervous system with the muscles they use to perform the action through a new neural pathway. So then you establish muscle memory, which helps you perform your task subconsciously. Right. So neural pathways are really important, forming the right neural pathways. And that's what practice does in everything, whether it's tone, technique, articulation, 
breathing, posture, you're developing muscle memory. And yeah. so that's why it's very important to get it right yeah. at the start or to correct it as soon as possible if you're if you think you've slipped a bit. The idea of doing this um, repetitive practice, sh we should be embracing that in a way. And I think the other really important distinction here is that we need to do this without being stuck to, to the music stand. Absolutely. Because I think we need to be able to watch what's going on. So don't, you know, don't be ambitious about playing some complicated piece when you're trying to sort your finger work out. And so many times it's not until you've got a difficult passage um, that you, you know, you you don't focus on 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 finger technique. And I think actually this should be part of the warm up. So when we're warming our sound up, and it's one of the arguments I, I we had somebody I can't remember who it was now came in and did a masterclass uh, to my students, and they were talking about how very quickly we can get very critical about our sound when you start with warming up your sound and actually you need to warm up your fingers first get blowing get moving and then you're awake enough if you like to start thinking about your sound otherwise you're very critical very quickly and it really resonated with me because how many times have you picked up your flute played a note and gone oh that doesn't sound very good it's a little bit off-putting so maybe don't think about that sound too soon and instead do a little pattern it can be a scale pattern or it, break it down and just do a two note two finger one finger movement or five notes of a scale so start with g major g a b c d c b a g do 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 it three or four times so easy to memorize that little pattern stand in front of a mirror and just watch the movement of the fingers really keep blowing and breathing but don't be too critical about the sound just get those fingers moving watch what's happening in the mirror and then go to your music and then go to your tone warm-up knowing that you've you know you've you've put some muscle memory in um first and when you don't need to be you don't need to be too critical i totally agree with you claire in your introduction of of you need to make a nice sound but also, you know, getting your fingers moving and just blowing and then then tying the whole thing up together once you've got started. It might sort of avoid, if you're anything like me, you know, putting your flute down too quickly because you're not making a nice sound today because you're you're going to be improving, probably improving your sound anyway, just by by, by focusing on something else. Breathe and blow, but watch your fingers. You mentioned patterns or sequences. They're, they're my favourite thing. And I'm a great believer in people writing their own musical noodles or doodles yeah. um, to make up little patterns. And I know that you've got a lovely exercise for, and it's a it's the, the beginning of a trill exercise, which works really well. I've also used the same thing in my flute aerobics for, for little fingers, where maybe you could describe what the exercise is. Very useful but you've got to be quite dedicated to do a little bit each day, don't you? I think, yes. I mean, if you're anything like me, I, I tend to sort of have a little sort of, I don't know, a little chart almost where I can give a tick to, yes, I did my trill exercise today. <laughs> I learned it originally on, on a recorder. Um, fingers 
work so fast on a recorder we haven't got any mechanism at all and there is a thrill i think as a recorder player of playing ridiculously fast and when i was at junior college we did used to have these little competitions on who can go fast enough um and so you know i was inspired to get my fingers moving and 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 the quickest way i found was to do a a, a trill exercise I, I i've recorded it for dorks music if you look on youtube uh, dorks music it was quite fun recording this exercise because it's deathly dull to listen to <laughs> but it's also you know it's it's equally just so easy and it's one of those you can do in front of your mirror without too much thought so you're basically doing a g major scale with just each note re repeated over and over and over again watching how high your finger comes up i like the idea that you can lift it out of the hole you can push it down into the hole there's that two different ways of thinking about it you do need to be quite inventive and creative if you're going to you know succeed in this but you know set yourself either a, a little chart or you know be ambitious with yourself maybe you know use a metronome and see if you can notch it up a little bit depending on who you are and what you know what inspires you but uh, they are deathly dull actually these repetitive um patterns um, but so, so good for you. So, so good. So, you know, it's it's a bit like, you know, when someone says flute technique, basically it's every finger needs work. Whereas when you talk about tone, there's lots of different subject matters, but finger technique is every finger. Yeah. What we're talking about is if you set a slow metronome beat and then you just repeat two notes. So if you've got a beat going like this, so you've got two notes to each beat and then try three then four and then so you go to, to two three four six eight and then you could do that on every finger just pick a key and do it on every finger which is what you do in your youtube video yeah, <laughs> I can't think of the word. So it but it's it's such a useful exercise and it's it sounds boring but incredibly important. I just just remembering I I watched a little a little video of a saxophonist clarinetist player I've known known for many years. Used to, I used to yeah. work with her, uh, Victoria Samick, and she was talking, she was saying, talking about a practice and she's saying practice it's like gardening so the, she, she, the video is her in her garden <laughs> mowing the lawn and with her gloves on and doing stuff and she was talking about if you own a house and a garden you have to keep the maintenance up and she said learning a musical instrument is exactly the same you know you've got to keep the maintenance up so yeah what we're talking about here is the maintenance of every finger and that if you yeah. want to be a successful player these are the things you have to look at so if you've got weak fingers do that little trill exercise because that'll strengthen your fingers but i just love the yeah. fact she's doing this video from her garden and it just brought <laughs> it all home that yes we we need to look at every area of our technique the general technique and just little incremental uh, improvements will make us as a whole sound so much better um, so much better yeah yeah absolutely i mean how 
wonderful is it i mean i'm sure um you know it's deeply satisfying actually and i do have some students i have to say and i watch their fingers and they each rise the exact amount off their flutes and you know what Claire? so often i actually have to i mean it sounds ridiculous but i have to slow them down because their fingers move so fast they move far faster than sometimes their, their tongues might be able to move or their sort of, uh, you know, the rhythmic emphasis in the piece is lost because they've just gone bloop because <laughs> they can. But how exciting for them, you know, that their fingers just do that movement so beautifully. And it is a thing of joy. It's really something to marvel at. And, and why not aspire? We should all aspire to have beautiful finger work because it it is a, it's, it's wonderful, but it, doesn't come without a little bit of hard work actually yeah. but i think it's desperately rewarding because you know if you have if you have a perfect balance in your fingers if you know that they'll move without any you know real effort involved and that's what we're looking for and i suppose it is that idea of you know getting that relaxed posture actively relaxed that we were talking about at the beginning that is what we're striving for um and at the same time i was talking with some students yesterday that i was working with about how to you know how teachers often don't help you understand how you should memorize something and we were just discussing you know the various ways that they go about memorizing music and one of the things that kept coming up in their discussions was muscle memory. And it just made me think, actually, if we could get some of the patterns that we're talking about uh, that come that we come across in the music into our fingers for memory, mm -hmm. that not only helps us to memorize music, which is a, a thing, you know, that uh, again, that is to aspire to really to free yourself up from the, from reading the dots. But equally, it's sort of a, an extenu, extenuating that idea um, of, you know, just repeating two notes into actually repeating whole passages. Mm. Um, and I think that also maybe avoids some of the tension that I think with flute music, particularly, gosh, you see all of these rapid runs. And I know that's covered a little bit in that um, a, a book that we were talking about, I think last year when we were looking at various different study books you know you open that and it's all those top notes and he talks about you know the the lines and the blackness mm. and sometimes the tension that we put into our fingers could be a trigger from from a visual scary looking passage yep. um so putting it in your in your fingers from memory avoids you having to look you can just shut your eyes and play absolutely my only proviso with that would be to say that I hear a lot of flute players who can play very, very fast and there is no sound behind it. So it's very easy to get distracted by saying, I want to play fast, want to play fast. But fast is no good unless there is a quality of sound there. So the sound has to be produced at the same time as you're moving your fingers. So that might be from maybe starting slow enough. I always say that if a skill is learned slowly, it has the possibilities of becoming fast. And I always used to say that you can, any anyone can play anything that's ever been written because you can just pick your own speed. So you can just go snail pace. Yeah. So, you know, Flight of the Bumblebee, you could play it so slow, like a beautiful 
adagio. And then put in the exercises and the drills, get the process right in order to get it speeded up. But yeah. you, you don't need to start fast. You need to start slow. So it's like the, the 100 meter runner doesn't run 100 meters immediately. They've, they've worked up to that. Um, and they gradually get faster and they make sure the muscles can cope with them getting faster. So yeah. we can put in the same, the same process, the same routines in, into our flute practice. And and when you're doing it slowly, that's when you can observe whether there's any tension in the fingers. Absolutely. And as you speed it up, just be aware, you know, as it gets a bit faster, do your fingers stay relaxed? Because as you said earlier, you know, you can't play fast once your fingers get tense. Yeah. I mean, they if you think of stiff fingers, gosh, really cold day when you've forgotten your gloves. Mm. That's a stiff finger. Yeah. You're going to try and persuade me that that can move faster if it's that stiff? No chance. No. Mind you, you a, a bowl of hot water sorts that, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, our hot water is slow, 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 slow. <laughs> That's pouring hot water on your fingers. <laughs> oh. So, okay, so we've, we've talked in relatively general terms. Um, I know um, last year we talked about um, study and sequence books, which is very um, applicable for today as well. That, you know, once you've got the basics sorted and you, um, you know, your fingers are moving in the right way, what do you practice in order to help you get faster? And maybe what's the, the technique? I mean, the process we talk about is to first of all practice what you can't play, not what you can play, and develop your, your practice techniques. So playing slowly, changing the rhythm, changing the articulation, change the key, playing groups, starting with the simple and building up to the more complex. All these, all these things, it's sort of common sense, but not many people think clearly yeah. when, they're, when they're practicing. The different rhythms, I think, is a is a super apart from starting slow, of course, to use different dotted rhythms to help work through passages and taking out the passages out of your pieces and then making a little sequence on it. I think um, making the sequences using, um, you know, your sequence book, which is fantastic. And then just seeing you can write your own sequences then because it yeah. gives you all the nuts and bolts of, of what a sequence is, uh, how to work it into that little passage so yes take it out and then extend it maybe you know play it down the octave up the octave try it in different um different colors use a lot more air always <laughs> and then just yeah just just pattern it into a into into a different way um my students will tell you always play it back to front i'm a yes. great believer in the back to front because once you've done it back to front you then really know what those notes are. So back to front, inside out, add the dots, put the different emphases on different notes, because then mm -hmm. that'll, and by the time you've done all of that, you've actually practiced it a lot of different ways. If we talk about something very specific, I always think of Kulenk Sonata first movement, when you've got, I think it's top A, which is really tricky, and everybody falters on that. And yeah. you could pick that out and you start it an octave lower mm -hmm. and they gradually go up in semitones or tones 
so that and start slow and do a little make a little sequential pattern and same thing with that you change the speed you change the rhythms and go beyond the notes that it's written if it's top a get up to top b which would be far harder and then the actual passage of the poulang becomes feels easy because you've done it so many different ways I love that as well, to, to make it harder. I was thinking scales. I mean, whatever note you've gone up to, if you're comfortable going up to C, then go up to C sharp and D. Make it harder so that when you come back to it, it's suddenly easier. And I think that's a really great idea with that Poulon bit. Because and, and the other thing is to recognise, you know, this is a hard passage and make a virtue in, in making it easy you know finding your way around it and making it easy don't just keep it as the hard passage the bit that i can oh i can play this piece but not that bar yeah. um don't be satisfied with that you know this is the hard bar so be the one person who's made it easy by by starting with it maybe <laughs> you know yeah. every practice start with the hard bar absolutely and taking up Je jeffrey gilbert's sequence book was based on hard orchestral passages brilliant so, uh, but it's a, that's a very hard book. I think it's just called Sequences. Mm -hmm. Then that's the sort of book you would pick if you're an advanced player. And it's, I said, it, all the difficult passages that he knew from the orchestral repertoire. Anybody else, you could start with, we've talked about sequences. A scale is a sequence. It's the most boring one, I always say. But you could take a little bit of it, just take a little bit of it and work at it. And maybe you could start, do that backwards. Maybe you could start, in the third octave and come down to the bottom and then go back up rather than always start at the bottom and go up. Because when you start at the bottom and go up, the top always suffers. But if you get yeah. all the energy and start in the top register and then come down, they always sound better. Yeah. So you have to make up different ways to practice that suit you. When you know something works for you, stick to it. Stick to it. And yeah. I love the Reichart patterns. I think they're yes, great. So do I. Oh, and I love I love changing those into fast and slow and finding the, the difference between the two and translating one into the other. So very often when we play slowly, we think about the sound, we think about the use of air mm -hmm. and we allow the air to really carry us. And when we play it fast, that's the one thing I think we always forget is to hold on to the, to the, to the support system, which which is the airflow. Um, so it doesn't matter how fast your fingers are moving, airflow is still the most important thing in a way, just to carry you, just to support you, just to, to give energy to those fingers, give the fuel if you like. That's a great way of looking at it, absolutely. So yeah, the, the air often gets neglected because we get our head so full of technique, we yeah. get distracted. So that's why starting slow is good because you can start to bring all those things together. And it's important that in your practice that you're consciously thinking about the things you need to do so that when you go and perform, you don't have to think. It's subconscious. Because you can't be playing the Poulenc Sonata and be thinking about, oh yes, I've got to make sure these, these fingers work cleanly and that I, I get the the link between the E and the F going right, and um, I make sure I'm blowing hard enough. You can't, haven't got time to think. You have time to think in the practice so that you can then go and perform. Yeah. So it's it, they're very different things. So if you can't play something in your practice, you'll never play it in performance. 
I think that's right. It's that is that practice to make it right, and then there's the practice where you know you can't play it wrong. Yes, practice till you don't go wrong, rather than trying to get it right. It's a different. It's a different way of thinking. Hmm. So that you know, it's very easy to be very negative about practice. I always go wrong there, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And it's you shouldn't do that. You should find a way of practice that helps you overcome that. Yeah. So practice that it it doesn't go wrong. Yeah. And that really, you know, that that is, as you say, a totally different mindset somehow. Yeah. Because I think as a, you know, as a professional player, I can't go wrong. Claire. And that's a really, really difficult mindset to for you know for somebody to get into. But it, you know, it requires a practice that is in a different completely different way it's it sort of you know is that passage so in my fingers that I can't play it wrong mm -hmm. and I often practice thinking you know could I record this today if I recorded it today would it be perfect and you don't always want that sort of pressure on on when you're when you're playing and I understand that but if you've got something that you really want to play really well just having that, you know, could I put a microphone on this right now and would it be okay? Um, along with recording yourself. But we, we're sorry, we, we're coming quite a way off finger technique. <laughs> but I think we've, co we've covered an awful lot. I think it's a really good place maybe to start. Just want to recap maybe that we've talked about for flute, for the finger technique to work, we really got to think about the foundations of that, the basics of the posture and the hand positions and the breathing and the blowing. And then make sure that you think about the process of getting your fingers to go faster. And it's not just a case of playing fast pieces. It's a case of working at general technique so that all your fingers are moving along equally. They are improving and developing equally. Yeah. Um, so you don't scare yourself. Remember that anything that's ever been written can be played at a slow enough speed. If you record yourself, you'll hear what you can do and what you can't do. And the bits you can't do, that's what you should work on. The only other thing I would say, Claire, is if you haven't played this week without the music in front of a mirror, then you might have missed something. Take yeah. your flute to a place where you've got a mirror and just play two notes if that's all you want. But you must, must, must get away from just standing in front of the music stand all the time because you won't see necessarily where the problem might lie. That's wonderful. Liz, I think that's been an absolutely super chat. Let's just remind our listeners, you can get in touch with us on our social media platforms. We've got um, a designated Facebook page called Talking Flutes. Uh, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Claire Flute and at Flute and email flutepodcast at gmail.com. So if you want to hear Liz and I talk about something else specific, then do write in, get in touch because it's been so informative. Thanks, Liz. Absolutely wonderful. You're very welcome. I hope we'll talk again soon. You take yeah. care. Bye. Bye. <laughs>
Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.